0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Hey, very good morning to you. It is Saturday the 25th of November 2023, and we are talking childhood today. What did it look like a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, and what can we learn about the nature of children from how they've been treated in the past? Happy Saturday to you all. Like I've said, today is the 25th of November, 2023. It is a balmy minus two here in Gloucestershire, which I am quite enjoying. Not so much enjoying the condensation on the windows, I must admit. But uh, as I was getting rid of that this morning and I noticed the frost down on the ground, which I think is the first frost of the season, I was very happy. I found myself very happy to be entering my festive, wintry mood, and I am very excited to be able to share that with you today. Now, if you tried to tune in last week, you will have noticed that uh, I disappeared. We had some technical issues going on, And that led me to the conclusion that this show is cursed. Not the Saturday breakfast show in general, Saturday breakfast show is wonderful and we love it and it's our favorite time of the week and we all want to be here all the time. We wish it could be Saturday breakfast every day. Um, But talking about childhood, talking about the history of childhood, does appear to be a cursed topic for me because I'm fairly sure this is now the fourth time I've tried to do this topic to cover this on the show. Um, Last week, there were technical issues, which meant about 20 minutes into the show, I just disappeared from you. Um, The previous time I attempted to do this one, we got ourselves on a bit of a tangent about mental health, which is very, very important. I was very happy to go off on that tangent, but it did mean having to postpone the topic. and then the time before that when i was originally going to do this that was when i accidentally took my extended summer break um which again i'm not complaining about i quite enjoyed being off for the summer but uh, it does seem to be that every time i attempt to cover this topic uh, something goes wrong and i've had the tab that has got all of the information that i need for today's show open i think since about july which, to be fair, might account for the technical issues that I'm having if my poor computer has just been on and running this exact same tab since July. So I am looking forward to this show going very, very smoothly. No hitches today, no technical issues today. I'm going to tell you all about the history of childhood, and we are going to close that tab. It is going to be gone from Chrome forever. But it is a very important topic, I think, which is why I keep trying to revisit it, despite the universe telling me it's clearly a bad idea. Because I think there is a lot to be said about how different societies and different time periods have constructed this concept of childhood. Because like many things, uh, like knowledge itself, like education itself, childhood is a constructed concept. It's not something that is is natural it's not something that we particularly see amongst animals you know if we are going for Thomas Aquinas's idea that what is natural is what we see in the animal kingdom then childhood is is not something there it's something that is constructed by us created by us and I think because it has changed so fundamentally and so rapidly across the course of human history. Charting it, figuring out what it looks like can help us to understand the young people in our care, can help us to understand the young people who are so different to how we were as children and can help us to see exactly why childhood and adulthood are so different and indeed why childhood and teenagehood are so different despite the fact that the concept of the teenager wasn't really invented until the 1950s so i do think this is a really important topic i think this is important for us as educators um, and as i've said before on the show i like to use the term educator because i'm aware that not all of my audience are teachers um, of course, big portion of you are, and welcome, good morning to you, I hope that you are enjoying your Saturday. But I also know among my audience, I have uh, writers, I have social workers, I have psychologists, all sorts of people who are involved in working with children. So it's not just the teachers who are here, all of us who educate children, who come into contact with children, who have a responsibility for children should be thinking about what it actually means to be a child, what it means to be a child specifically in 2023, or as we move forward into 2024. And so that's what I'm really excited to to kind of discuss with you today, to talk about today, and to construct with you today. So please do uh, join in the conversation. If you are listening live on Podbean, you can text in if you are on the app. If you are listening to me live elsewhere, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, or one word. If you are listening back on the replay, you can also tweet me. I will happily take any tweets and engage with you because as I say often on the show, I think every week, to be honest, it's becoming something of a catchphrase of mine. These are topics that interest me these are topics that are not going away from my personal zeitgeist, from my concept of of what is important in education and so I will always happily engage on these topics. So please do um, get in touch if you have got any ideas, any concepts, any um, elaboration on any of the things that we are going to talk about over the next hour and a bit. So, With that said, let's have a think about what it means to be a child. Because we've all been children at some time or another, the point at which we stopped being a child is kind of personal, I suppose, because we all stop feeling like a child at different points in our lives. Some of us might still behave like children, um, if we are perfectly honest with ourselves, and there is nothing wrong with that. I firmly believe in act your shoe size and not your age, except I only wear a size seven. I've got small feet. I think I would like to behave a bit older than seven, but you know, I see nothing wrong with that mentality. I see nothing wrong with that thought process. And I think it's really important for us as people who are engaged with children, as people who educate children, to remember what it is to be a child. Now, obviously, being a child in 2023 is very different to being a child in the early 90s like I was. Um, In fact, I saw a video yesterday on Facebook um, as it was just kind of scrolling through and it was a comedian i forget who now but he was talking to some children and he asked them what was it like before the internet what did children do for fun before the internet um and they had some rather interesting ideas um apparently we played poo sticks quite a lot now in case you're you're not sure or in case the name has a different Uh, in case the game has a different name where you are from who sticks is the game where you stand on a bridge or anything over running water drop some sticks into the water and then you see whose stick comes out the other side first so children seem to think that we played that all the time i can confirm that i have never played that game in my life so i clearly missed out Uh, there was another child who seemed to think we just threw paper around And I still don't quite understand what that child was thinking of. But apparently we used to just take sheets of paper, sometimes tissue, bore them up and throw them and just see where the wind took them, I think. So that was that was quite enlightening. Um, But what I did find quite interesting about this video was that none of the children talked about imaginative play. And that's what I remember most from my childhood now i think there are um instances here where i need to recognize my privilege because my parents very much encouraged imaginative play um i was not really one for playing outside but i was forced to <laughs> um which you know was a positive i i grew up with a brother and a sister who are three years younger than me which i think is actually quite a good age difference for siblings because it's kind of big enough that we weren't in each other's pockets but close enough that we were going through similar stages of life so when we wanted to play we could all play together and kind of when i grew out of playing with um with other people they were kind of on that cusp. And, and you know, so I'm very lucky in that regard that there was always somebody to play with. We had toys and we used those toys creatively, not always what they were, were designed for, but in lots of different ways. But interestingly, one of my most vivid memories is from the early 90s. It must have been about 1992, 1993. Um, So I'd have been seven or eight. Um, And I remember having this calculator. And and it's typical, isn't it? I had all these toys and I was playing with a calculator. Um, And it was a Friday afternoon. And I remember it was a Friday afternoon because I had just finished watching Nightmare, which was a Friday afternoon autumn staple in my house. Um, And I was using this calculator as if it were... a a mobile phone I suppose and now of course mobile phones existed at this point in the late 80s early 90s but they weren't common at all you know it was inconceivable to think that anybody in my family would have one let alone 30 something years later where everybody in my phone has uh, in my phone in my family has got one and And so even though it was quite an ordinary object, it was a calculator that I was pretending was a phone because it had buttons, you know, it was an old school calculator with buttons, but it lit up green. And so in my head, I was being very futuristic because you know, obviously, when I was seven years old, green was the color of the future. All kind of futuristic sci-fi shows seemed to be neon green. I remember, or at least that's how I saw them in my head. And that was just how I used this calculator. And it might not sound like much, it's not a big leap to go from calculator to phone, and it's something that was clearly within the realms of feasibility because people had them. But it was just that, that step of imagination to go, this thing that I have is in fact something completely different that my parents really encouraged, and that I have seen less and less of as time has gone through. I noticed this while I was a primary school teacher. So I taught primary for five years. Um, I specialised in primary languages and primary RS. And um, we found that, or as, as I observed the children, at playtime i noticed that even just across those five years or the eight years if you include my my bed training the imaginative play at playtime was becoming less and less even kind of the younger the children got there they were still playing there was still ball games happening skipping ropes were being brought out all of that sort of thing but they were very much kind of physical sporty games as opposed to imaginative play And I don't uh, I don't teach primary anymore, but I would be interested to hear from any of my primary colleagues about imaginative play, particularly in kind of key stage two. So particularly when the kids are seven or eight years old, is imaginative play still happening? Um, particularly free imaginative play out in the playground, not when you're doing drama, not when you're doing English speaking and listening. Is that still happening? Because I have a horrible feeling that it is on the decline. And I really, really hope that I am wrong. Uh, Tim has texted in a very good morning to you. Tim is a friend of the show here at Saturday Morning Breakfast and is a writer for children. Uh, And he says, and now our phones have calculators, you trailblazer. Absolutely. See, I think that I should get some kind of commission. I should get a percentage of every phone sold because that was clearly my idea. The fact that I didn't patent it, the fact that I didn't tell anybody does not matter. My idea, I should be making money from this. Um, But what's interesting about, about that concept is that clearly... It was a thing that was obvious to do. This link between phones and calculators was obvious because seven year old I made that link through my imaginative play. And obviously, you know, whoever thought to put a calculator into a phone um, is older than me, I hope. Otherwise, that means that I've wasted my life not inventing calculators and in phones. And maybe they had the same idea, maybe they had those same thoughts. And I think that's one of the things that imaginative play in childhood does, is it encourages that, as much as I hate these cliches, it encourages that out-of-the-box blue sky thinking that becomes vital in adulthood if we are going to move society forward. You know, phones don't naturally evolve, they're not alive. And so if we are going to make them better, if we're going to make the technology that we use better, if we're going to make the world better, we need to have that ability to think outside of the, the confines of what we have and see what could come next. And I think if we don't have the imaginative play, um, if that starts to disappear, then I worry that we're not training our next generations into how to think outside the box. And again, I hope that I'm wrong. And I hope that children are all playing, um, and I hope that I've just got this this misguided misconception. Um, but I do have
2: a horrible feeling that I am right. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR. 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
3: In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure, helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success.
2: On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back, and even better for educators new for 2024 table talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space as well as tech user labs the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at bed where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institutions tech from the top education technology experts in the world whatever your goal You'll find it at Bet2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
4: School summer holidays are often a hot topic, but they made the news again in The Guardian as leaders in Wales appear to be considering changes. According to reports, Wales's Minority Labour Administration wants to shrink summer breaks from six weeks to five and eventually reduce it to four weeks. The plan would see the time added to half-term breaks in October and May. The proposal would equalise the length of terms and break the connection with Easter by fixing the timing of the spring break, regardless of when the religious festival falls. The newspaper says the plans follow research by the government, which suggests that parents struggle to organise and pay for childcare over the summer. Plaid Cymru, which supports the proposal, said in a statement that the current calendar was outdated, as it was designed a long time ago, and that some families find the summer break very long and impacting negatively on their well-being. However, the article also points out that evidence of the harm to learning from school holidays is unclear, as much of the evidence comes from the United States, where summer holidays can be up to 12 weeks long, rather than the six to seven weeks in the UK. John Hattie, Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, said the effects from school holidays are very small and there is little reason to believe that the length of the school year has much effect at all. A study from 2019 that looked at pupils from primary schools in an area of high deprivation in Scotland and England found no effect on reading skills. In Northern Ireland, schools typically have eight weeks off in the summer, but generally have results in exams that are better than those in England or Wales. However, a 2022 study did find evidence of worsening mental health in some age groups over long summer breaks. Surveys done in Wales found 60% of parents said they were quite happy with the school year as it is. In 2013, then Education Secretary Michael Gove gave schools in England the power to choose the timing of holidays, but most schools kept the six weeks. The BBC News website reports on the Beyond Ofsted Inquiry. The inquiry is chaired by former Schools Minister Lord Knight and is funded by the National Education Union. The report from the inquiry recommends that schools should instead be responsible for their own improvement plans. Ofsted has responded by repeating its previous statement that inspections are needed to ensure a high quality education. The inquiry said that Ofsted was now seen by many as toxic and not fit for purpose and in need of major reform. The removal of single word judgments was also recommended and this echoed another report on school improvement released earlier by the Institute for Public Policy Research, which also called for narrative style judgments rather than single words. The Beyond Ofsted inquiry recommended stopping Ofsted from having direct contact with schools and instead schools should draw up their own improvement plans which would make them accountable to parents and the wider local community. Lord Knight, speaking to the BBC, said Ofsted created a culture of fear in our schools. His report also said that Ofsted had become under-resourced for the high-stakes job expected of it. A spokesperson for Ofsted said 9 out of 10 schools say inspections helped them to improve. In related news, the current Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spielman, has written in her final annual report about parents being increasingly willing to challenge school rules in England. She described the unwritten contract between home and school as fractured and that it will take time to repair. The report is broadly positive but draws attention to a shift in behaviour, attendance and attitudes to education since the pandemic describing it as leaving a troublesome legacy. Full details of her comments can be found across media outlets. Teach First has celebrated its 20th anniversary with three former Prime Ministers praising the charity's work in tackling education inequalities. According to Teach First's own website newsfeed, the charity has recruited more than 16,000 teachers to work in disadvantaged areas across England. Teach First CEO Russell Horby reaffirmed the charity's mission to help Britain's most disadvantaged children to achieve their full potential. Finally, student immigration data has been released with Home Secretary James Cleverly stating the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK are students and healthcare workers. He further commented that this was testament to our world leading university sector. According to data, Indian nationals account for over one quarter of all sponsored study grants, followed by Chinese nationals. The education sector relies heavily on students applying to UK universities for significant funding, but there is also political pressure to reduce net immigration. Any plans to make changes to the current system will be monitored carefully, although for now the focus remains on illegal migration rather than legal routes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
1: There are a couple of things that Joe said in there that I want to pick up on. One kind of overarching theme that kind of fits quite nicely with our our topic today, Um, but also feeds into another piece of news. So let's talk about that idea of reducing the summer holidays really quickly. Uh, Now, again, I'm going to acknowledge my own bias here because I am a teacher and I love the summer holidays. I really do. They are my favorite part of the year because they are the time that we get to finally stop to take a couple of weeks without work. Because, you know, let's be honest, we do work during the summer holidays um, and just kind of be a person. So, you know, I'm acknowledging my bias there, but I find it really interesting that Joe said that, the considerations to reduce the summer holidays were because there is evidence that parents struggle with them. So there's evidence that parents struggle to find childcare, there is evidence that um, parents struggle with the routines and all of that sort of thing. And, And so I'm going to kind of just quickly pick up on something that is a bugbear of mine, I'm going to be honest, and that is that schools are not childcare facilities. Or rather, schools should not be child care facilities. We are educational facilities. And one of the reasons I think that teacher workload, which is a hot topic at the moment, is so heavy, is because we schools are expected to be everything. We are child care. We are um, topping up social services. We are topping up. Um, mental health services, and so education—the—the the actual creation, transmission of knowledge—kind of gets pushed down the list of priorities. And in my opinion, it it shouldn't. I feel like governments should fund individual, um, uh, individual corporations, individual bodies to take care of each of these things that do work together so that we are safeguarding the child holistically, but so that I, as a teacher, can concentrate on the knowledge, which is is the bit that to me is really important. I'm also interested to know where the research is into the impact of the holidays on child wellbeing. Now, we're going to acknowledge right now that um, research with children is difficult because there are a lot of ethical issues to be considered when you are doing any kind of research with children. However, how many of our children actually need the longer holidays, again, in order to recuperate from their long days at school? Because when you are four years old, 9am until 3pm is a very long time. And you then go home at three, and maybe you're in bed by 6.30, 7 o'clock, so you don't get a whole lot of time to just be at home. And I would be interested in whether the reduction of the longer holidays and and I acknowledge that they're not necessarily saying that there will be fewer weeks of holidays in the year they will just be dispersed differently but I will be interested to know whether there has been any thought into the reduction of the summer holiday on child well-being because for me again some of my best memories of my childhood were during the summer holidays and again, I'm going to acknowledge my own privilege here because my mum did work outside the home, but she worked um, evening shifts. So she kind of didn't go to work until we'd all gone to bed, which meant that my parents didn't have to worry about finding childcare and all of that sort of thing. Um, and because, of course, we were at home with mum, we just did lots of things together, you know. Even just going up the town, going into the co-op, buying something for lunch, all of that sort of thing. For me, they are the the foundational memories of my childhood. And when I think about what it was to be a child, I look back on the summer, um, particularly that transition from summer into autumn, and kind of late August, those those dog day afternoons of summer when we would go out and we would start collecting the leaves that were falling and we would do crafts with them and we would go and get things to make um, on toast for our lunches and we would watch films on tv and we would play and we would just be children and those, those summers were some of the best parts of my, my young life. And I feel like it was kind of the length of the summer that made it. Because again, when you are a child, a six-week summer holiday is a long time. It stretches out in front of you. And there was relief in that. There was fun in that. There was fun knowing that you had six Mondays off. I used to love it. Um, I've always been somebody who has liked keeping a, a calendar, a diary. And I used to love looking through my my little black diary and seeing the six Mondays that I didn't have to go to school and the six Tuesdays and the six Wednesdays. And and I I remember being really sad when it got to Friday because it meant that we were a week closer, a week of my holiday had gone. And so it was only five Mondays until I had to go back. And and there are all of these little things that that to an adult don't mean very much, but to a child are so important. And yes, it is wrong that there is no affordable childcare, particularly in a society that requires two working parents um, in order to function. I'm not sure how any family um, gets by On only one wage and and I tip my hats to those who manage. But I'm not sure that changing the school routine, I'm not sure that taking away those opportunities for a long summer, for an enjoyable summer, is the right way to go about it. I think the right thing to do would be to increase the availability of childcare, to increase the availability of free or subsidised childcare for families that can't afford um, babysitters and and childminders and, and everything else. I think there are other things that we can do before we start suggesting that we take away things that are very important to a child that are a fundamental part of childhood. But again, that is just my opinion. As always, as I said before, if you agree, if you disagree, if you've got anything to say on the topic, please do text in if you're listening live on the Podbean app, or you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester, that's at M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word, and let me know what you think. So, childhood as an academic discipline is becoming more and more um, recognised. I'm going to preface this by saying as i always do when i cover historical topics um that i'm not a historian i love history i find history fascinating um but i'm not a historian i'm a, i'm a linguist and a classicist so we are kind of out of my out of my specialism right now and so if any real historians in the audience want to um to jump in at any point and kind of correct anything that i say or add their viewpoint then it will be gratefully received but as a a domain of history and as a domain of academia, um, childhood studies is becoming more and more prominent. Uh, There is in fact a whole journal uh, dedicated to childhood history, it's the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth which has been kind of fundamental in my planning of this show, Um, and there is also an International Scholarly Board Um, associated with it. So it has become this really interesting, really important academic domain. Um, There are of course constraints to studying childhood. Uh, The first and most important to recognize perhaps is um, that there can be no real primary sources when dealing with childhood because very few children leave written records of their experiences of childhood. So most written studies, uh, most written artifacts about childhood that we can study uh, come from adults either reflecting on their own childhood or observing the children that they are seeing. Most physical artifacts, toys, books, are produced by adults for children, so that's adults putting onto children their their idea of what they think childhood should be like. And so we end up with this very odd discipline where we are attempting to study childhood and to understand what it is to be a child, but through the lens of an adult. And I think that's always, always quite difficult. Uh, June has texted in, good morning to you, loving the name, loving your icon. I will be honest, I've not read the June books, but uh, they're getting a lot of a lot of love lately in, in the literary circles. Uh, and so I am very tempted to pick them up. Uh, but June has said, unfortunately, I'm here in the Scottish borders. Childcare centres and independent childminders have closed due to costs, etc. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think this is kind of the the other side of what I was saying before about schools becoming more responsible for childcare. Is that the the people whose vocation is childcare, you know, the childminders, the babysitters, the the play school. Um, boards, all of those sort of things, their jobs are being taken away, they are losing their jobs because parents either can't afford to use them or they can't justify the idea of spending money to have their child looked after when school is running a free breakfast club, a free after school club. And so again, because there is no funding for for childcare proper. It does mean that people are losing out on jobs that they should be doing and that they should be loving. Um, My mum follows on YouTube a lady who used to be a childminder Um, and she was brilliant because she was essentially an early years educator whilst childminding. So she did topic-based play, Um, every couple of weeks she changed around what the children in her care were learning about and, and she loved that, and she was very good at it. I think that we are losing educators who don't particularly want to be teachers, who don't particularly want a class of 34 six-year-olds in their care, but don't mind having 10 and taking them down to forest school and running the forest school. How many forest schools might we end up losing? Again, because there is no funding for, for out-of-school childcare. I think it's a big issue. I think it's a big issue that really needs to be addressed um, because it impacts all sorts of people, not just um, not just those of us who work in schools. So thank you, June, for, for pointing that out. I, I appreciate your input and your insight. Um, so yeah, studying childhood is an interesting one because we are constrained by that lack of primary sources from children themselves. It's also an interesting subject in that it's going to vary a lot by time which is what we're talking about today but also by geographical location. What it is to be a child in England in 2023 is not necessarily the same as what it is to be a child in wales in 2023 or in scotland in 2023 and these are three countries that are physically joined together and could be seen to have the same society the same culture and that then means that there is going to be a difference between what it is to be a child in the united kingdom in 2023 and in china in 2023 in japan in 2023 in the usa in 2023 so we've got we've got temporal constraints and we have got geographical constraints which make it very difficult to create this unified concept of what is childhood but it also makes it very interesting because i think looking at what different um geographical regions prioritize in terms of childhood, can tell you a lot about the priorities of that society, the priorities of those people. Looking at where governments are spending the money in terms of children can tell you a lot about the priorities of that government. So I think as as an academic discipline, childhood studies is fascinating and I think it should be undertaken by more people because I think that there is a lot that we can learn by thinking about how our young people are treated as people and I think that there are a lot of policies that can be informed that way. I think that there are a lot of educational changes that can be made by thinking about these things. I think it's really really important. So there is a lot of debate On this subject and there are a lot of frameworks that underpin it. Um, So there have been two, there are accepted to have been, I'm just going to qualify that, there are accepted to have been two huge structural changes regarding the position of children in society. So the first came way way back when we transitioned from hunter-gatherer Economies to agricultural economies. And the second was then in that big shift from an agricultural economy to an urbanized industrial economy. And so, of course, that then adds another layer in terms of that geographical issue that I was talking about, because we do have societies that have remained agricultural rather than industrial. And so, what it is to be a child in those societies will be different to what it is to be a child in an industrial society. And as we move into post-industrialism, what does that then mean? Are we seeing another big shift in what it means to be a child as our society continues to change? So a lot of the standard treatment of world history involves the experience of agricultural society. Um, and that does go for childhood studies as well. And so it's really important for us to understand what it meant to be a child in an agricultural society uh, so that we can understand how that evolution happened. And so that's the the primary framework in which childhood studies operates. You also have to have a look at um, the impact of religion on children and, and religious development on children. Again, we see during the agricultural society period this massive sweeping change regarding religion um, and, and what it was to be religious, what people believed in. And that impacted how they treated their children. That impacted the the worth of children for these people. Um, How did the emergence of globalization impact children? We see that a lot, I think, in the UK, in terms of the Americanization of our young people. So, you know, we've had, and I've talked about this on the show before, the emergence of like as a verbal filler among young people in Britain. Now, of course, that is very stereotypical Californian valley girl speak of the early 90s and in these days is seen as being low educated as seen as being um, semantically empty so somebody who uses like a lot in their speech is seen as not really having anything to say which is why they need to fill their speech and of course that's rooted in the misogyny of um, anti-Californian women sentiment. But that owes that has only become prominent among our young people because of their exposure to American media because of our exposure to American media when I was growing up, I think most of the programs that I watched were american um there was the the children's block on i t v that we used to watch the c i t v block um from about half past three to half past five every day, and that was predominantly British programming. There were a few American programs, but predominantly British. But other than that, particularly when dedicated channels for children uh, started to become a thing, with the rise of B, the the availability of Sky Television here in England, um, you know, we had we had Nickelodeon, we had Cartoon Network, we had these channels that had initially 12 and eventually 24 hours of programming to fill. And so a lot of it was American because it was much cheaper to import the American programming and, um, and, and show that instead of producing our own, which meant that I became more exposed to American English, to American culture, to American Um, language structures and that has continued and in fact our young people are getting even more exposure now because social media is predominantly American and so this globalization has an impact on how our children think and how our children speak. One of my colleagues in a lesson that I observed earlier this week challenged his year eight class to give an explanation of the of the topic they were covering without using the word like as a verbal filler because it's something that that the children in my context are using a lot and they really struggled they really struggled with that because it has become such a part of their their vernacular because of their exposure to american english via social media so globalization has an impact i'm not saying that globalization is a bad thing as as you know i am a linguist i very much believe that we should be taking things from other countries to make our own better i think that we should be understanding how other people think in order to improve the state of the world as a whole but we do have to take these things into account when we think about who our children are and and what it means to be a child today So, if we go back then, if we go back 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 in time to our hunter gatherer societies, um they were very varied in terms of how they hunted and what they gathered, because obviously there were geological there were geographical restrictions on what they could do and the types of animals that they hunted the types of foliage that they were gathering all that sort of thing had an impact on what this is their society looked like however historians have managed to piece together a few similarities um, it is generally believed that in hunter-gatherer societies birth rates were limited and that was achieved by prolonged periods of breastfeeding Um, up to four years old is the current thinking Um, and of course that then reduces the chance of subsequent conception now this is important when constructing this idea of childhood because it meant that there were likely lots of only children Or there were lots of children who had a five, six year age difference between them and their siblings. And as I said at the top of the show, for me, a three year age difference between me and my siblings was perfect because it meant we were generally at the same stages of development, but without being too annoying to each other. Um, And I wonder whether six years is quite a long time. Again, anybody who has children... Uh, with bigger age gaps, I would be interested in your thoughts on this, Uh, whether you think the age gap between children is is as important as as I think it is. Um, Because again, I don't have my own children, so I don't know, I can only speak from my experience as a child. But to me, that seems like quite a big age gap in terms of creating a, a positive relationship. It's likely that this occurred because these societies lacked the resources to handle too many children per family. Um, Because of course they were traveling around the region which meant they had to be able to pack up their family very quickly, move to where the animals were, move to where the, the vegetation was and if you've got four or five little kids running around that's they're hard to keep track of They are hard to pack up. They're hard to to get to do what you want them to do. Current studies also suggest that mothers who took their children with them to do the gathering may have been less productive than mothers who were able to leave them behind. So interestingly, childcare has become a kind of unintentional theme of our show today and this idea that childcare is important for the the adequate functioning of a society is becoming more obvious, even when we go back to when humanity kind of first became what we would recognize as humanity. So, young children then clearly did not have assigned roles in this society. If, If we're understanding that children Um, would have been left behind so that the mother could gather more efficiently, it's unlikely that children were employed to be gatherers, which honestly is what I would have assumed. You know, kind of knowing what I know about about Victorian children being sent up chimneys and all of that sort of thing, I would have assumed that in hunter-gatherer societies, children would have been used to gather. Um, But according to contemporary research, they weren't so that leads us to wonder what children actually were doing um you know if if they weren't allowed to go out and work what were they actually doing we see from hunter gatherer societies that there were different functions then between boys and girls so they did have functions within society and they were gender separated and This required different training um, after early childhood. So where we see kind of rites of passage uh, ceremonies, again, that link to the religion, that link to how children are seen, what children are doing. After these rites of passage ceremonies happen, the children pick up different, uh, different roles. And again, this is a very interesting thing to consider. At what point do you stop being a child? Now, I think for most of us, um, particularly in a European context, we would say 18. That's generally the point at which you are legally considered to be an adult. But of course, that doesn't apply to every society, that doesn't apply to every religion. In Judaism, for example, you go through your bar mitzvah, your bat mitzvah, at the age of 13 and at that point you are considered to be an adult. It's that rite of passage ceremony, it's that religious ceremony that marks that transition. And again with Judaism being a fairly consistent tradition that we can trace back quite reliably a very long way, we can kind of extrapolate from that. We can assume from, from what Judaism does that um, these These agricultural societies had very similar rites of passage at a very similar age. And so it's possible that after this rite of passage um, ceremony at, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, when the child begins to physically mature, that may have been the point at which they stopped being considered a child and started being considered an adult. So we've got evidence of these um, these rituals that emphasised that boys were ready to start hunting. But what's interesting is that even though these societies recognised gender differences between boys and girls, they also emphasised gender equality. That boys and girls were both expected to contribute towards society albeit in different ways, albeit one gender hunting, one gender gathering. So we see that children were seen as important only when they became adults. (laughs) It was kind of Very important for a child to become an adult, to become a functioning member of that society as quickly as possible. And I suppose that's purely practical, isn't it? If you've got a little agricultural community, let's say there are, I don't know what an average size would have been. So I'm going to pick a number at random. Let's say there are 50 people in your agricultural community. Let's say six of them are children. Six of them are under the age of 10. So that's six people who are consuming resources, but are not really able to contribute. And so that's six people for whom you've got to pick up the slack. In this really difficult, dangerous time where you are physically hunting your food, you are physically gathering your food, you are learning what is and is not poisonous in these new environments that you are moving into, you probably don't have anybody else to learn from, because as you've moved into one environment, another tribe may have moved out of it. So lots of things are being done through trial and error. And so you can begin to see why perhaps these societies wanted their children to become adults as quickly as possible, to contribute as quickly as possible. But what about those children before the age of maturation? What about those children who slowed down their mothers while they were gathering and so were left behind? What, what was to be done with them? And the main thing that seems to leap out, at least from all the studies that I've read, has been obedience. They were being trained in being obedient. And, and what scholars are saying is that this, obedient, this obedience was necessary so that the children could learn to work reliably. And I find that really interesting because that is a lot of the justification for rules in school. A lot of the time when we're asked, you know, oh, why do we have a dress code? Why do we have a uniform? Why do we start at nine? Why do we wait for the bells to to tell us when we can take a break? Often the answer that is given is so that children are ready for the world of work. We have a uniform, so that children know how dress codes work, so that they are ready for when they go. We have set breaks and lunches, so that children are ready for the world of work. So there is, again, this underlying current that we can trace from pre-industrial childhood through to modern childhood, which is essentially childhood is a training ground for being an adult. But of course what is quite interesting is that right now what it means to be an adult is changing. As we're seeing the move out of offices and working from home, as we are seeing the rise in self-employed people, um, as much as we might hate to admit it, as we're seeing the rise in people who are making a good living out of being influencers and out of their social media, we are seeing a change in working patterns and by continuing this tradition of everything that we are doing is preparing children for adulthood we might actually be preparing them for an adulthood that isn't going to exist when they get there and so by not looking at childhood as its own phase but as a training ground for being an adult we are both perpetuating our current understanding of adulthood and assuming that it will be the same for forever, when in fact, we're seeing a rapid change in that right now. And you have to wonder whether that's fair on the children. You know, making them do these things that they don't necessarily want to do. Shortening their school holidays. uh, Elongating their school days. All of these things that we we tell them and we tell each other are right, to prepare them for adulthood might not actually be preparation at all. So, should we maybe be looking at childhood as this distinct phase with its own trials and tribulations, with its own perks, and really leaning into that instead of saying, Oh no, we've got to make sure that our children are ready for in air quotes, the real world. Agricultural societies went to huge lengths to um, emphasize the importance of obeying parents. Um, And often we see religion again being used as a tool for that. So family obedience then could be linked to religious or political systems. And again, we can see that in societies that still exist. So in Confucianism, for example, filial piety, the the concept of being loyal to your family is a very important religious concept. And so we've got the intertwining here of, of family and religion, of obedience and religion, of obedience and family. It's kind of this, this nice triangle. And in fact, China gives us quite an interesting example from the Han period of the relationship between parents and children. So a Chinese law says when a father or mother prosecutes a son, the authorities will acquiesce without question of a trial. So at any point, if it's a parent's word against a child's word, the parent will win. And that's a very interesting viewpoint because I think that's something that we are seeing less and less of. I think we are seeing children now being given more autonomy, children being given more freedom and parents allowing their children to do more. I'm not gonna comment on whether that is a positive or a negative because I think it's a bit of both, but it's quite interesting that we have seen that change. And again, probably in the last 30-40 years that change has become most prominent, at least at least here where I am. It's not just Confucianism, of course, it's not just Chinese agricultural society that emphasized this, this concept of filial piety. Um, Judaism, had the same. Christianity has the same. Honor thy father and thy mother is one of the Ten Commandments which are staples in in both of those religions. And so there is a lot of effort put into instilling obedience into children. this idea that they will will obey their parents and they will obey adults at large, which again, is something that we do continue to, to prioritize. A lot of talk at the moment about behavior in schools because our expectation is that children will behave for adults. And that dates back thousands of years. We have to question why that's an assumption. Why do we assume that children will behave? Why do we assume that children should behave? Should children always behave? Is there, are there excuse me, are there any points where leniency should be given? you know when we are looking back at these things that we just take for granted and we see that they've been taken for granted for thousands of years you start to wonder whether anyone has ever questioned why and 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 what is gained now of course there are gains in school children should follow the adults directive because the adults are the ones who are more mature who are more rational and who can foresee consequences better. We know that the teenage brain for example has trouble um, um, passing out consequences, something about the chemistry, but as an adult we can see those consequences and so an expectation of behavior kind of underlines this idea of I understand something that you don't, therefore it's in your best interest to listen to me. But how much of it is also cultural? How much of it is passed down? And so we have this idea that you should listen to me just because I'm an adult. How often do we say to our young people, not necessarily as teachers, but as as parents, as uncles, as aunts, as godparents, you know, whatever familial relationship we might have. You've got to listen to me because I'm the grown up. We don't say, you've got to listen to me because I understand this situation better than you do. Because of course, that could be seen as, as insulting to the child. We don't say, you've got to listen to me because your brain chemistry is making you make decisions right now that you will regret later on. We just say, you've got to listen to me because I'm the adult. And of course, actually, when it's put to a child like that, it's no wonder they don't listen. So sometimes we have got to look back at the history of what it is to be a child, what it is to be an adult, what it is to have that relationship and go, actually, this is something that we've just always done and we should probably consider why, particularly as societies evolve. We've touched on on gender distinction between boys and girls and this is very prominent in agricultural society so we've got very clear cut power differentiate power differences um power differentials we've got um the men hunting the women gathering but as women started to have more children there became fewer opportunities for them to contribute to the the economics of the family which started to disrupt that equality, it started to disrupt that balance and so agricultural families may have started to kind of prioritize the the child-rearing responsibilities of the women and the hunting responsibilities of the men as a way of trying to equal this out, as a way of saying, okay, well, it's not very efficient for you to take the children gathering with you. We can provide enough meat for us, therefore, you stay at home and look after the children and we will go out and do the hunting. I'm not saying that that's right. Um, either morally or factually. I'm just positing that as as, as an idea of something that might happen. Um, we see though, even before they get to that stage, even before boys and girls get to the stage of being able to do anything, that there are differences in how they are treated. So again, we've got some Chinese advice literature Um, from the Han era, which says that baby girls should sleep at the foot of the parents' bed, whereas baby boys should sleep alongside the parents at the side of the bed. And I think that very much shows the attitude towards boys and girls not just in terms of the physicality of the placement, so not just in terms of the girl being put literally by her parents' feet while the boy was allowed to sleep in an equal position alongside them, but also in terms of how quickly you can cater to that child's needs. So a baby boy that cries, let's say we've got twins, a boy and a girl. The boy, if he cries because he's hungry, can be fed almost immediately. The girl cries because she's hungry. There's a slight delay. And it probably is only a few seconds so that you can get out of bed and get round to her, or crawl across the bed and pick her up. But it's still a delay. It's still not equal. And, and so we are seeing, for the first time, really, an inferiority of girls when compared to boys as the requirement for hunting kind of faded away and so industry started to become a thing we see that they have we see that these societies have kind of kept their model and transplanted it into this new normal and again this is quite interesting because this is something that we also see in modern society. You know, this idea that okay society has changed but we're just going to keep doing what we've always done in this new way. So what we're seeing is instead of the instead of fathers taking their sons out hunting fathers are taking their sons out to work and so boys would learn the family trade while girls continued to stay and learn how to tend to the home. So, we're, we're just shifting slightly, still doing the same thing, just shifting the domain in which it is done. And again, what's interesting here is that children are still kind of being treated as little adults. They are still being trained in the adult world. And like I've already said, as we've made that shift and now instead of children going to work with their parents they go to school they are still being trained as uh, they are still being trained to become adults we have still kept that that concept from thousands of years ago it's interesting to look at how agricultural societies viewed the emotional experiences of children. Now again, we, we have almost nothing written about this. Uh, there are, there's very little evidence for academics, for scholars to go on. Um, but what we do see, and again something that we can can pick up on as a theme, is the, um, on the presence of death, back during the the agricultural times back during these agricultural societies so we know even through the victorian period child mortality was very high and and we often think about that in terms of how sad it is for these children not to have lived very long but actually well no i'm sorry not actually what we also need to do is consider what that was like for their siblings particularly for older siblings, to know that there was a baby, to know that they had a brother or a sister, and then eventually to know that that brother or sister died. Death was very much a part of life for these children. Again, even through to the early 1900s, it was very common. Because I'm not saying, of course, that children um, these days don't experience... Death, don't have a handle on siblings dying because it does happen, but it was kind of an, uh, an assumed experience, I suppose, back during the Victorian era and before. We also have the loss of mothers because of high rates of maternal mortality during childbirth. Um, it's estimated that one in ten women would die during childbirth and so you know we we often see fairy tales of these wicked stepmothers nobody addresses where the the biological mother of these fairy tale heroes and heroines has gone and let's be honest they probably died giving birth to the person that story is about cinderella's mum probably died giving birth to cinderella and it was just considered so normal that the Brothers Grimm didn't need to comment on it. It was just assumed knowledge. And so children understood death in a way that I think we try and protect them from these days. But what's interesting is, and and Tim, you might have something to, to, to say about this from your studies and from your writing. We know that children like Kind of darker topics. We know that children like books that deal with um, death, that deal with spooky things. Children like to be scared in a way that is safe. I've talked about this on the show before, uh, during some of our Halloween shows. This idea of of safe scares and getting the adrenaline pumping, and and you have to wonder whether there is some kind of, I don't know, cultural resilience amongst children, where in their history they were they were watching mothers die they were watching siblings die and and so they became a little bit more resilient towards it than than we personally give them credit for so for these agricultural societies childhood was not a preferred period of life in the same way that it was now it was hard It was hard, you were ignored, you experienced death. You were kind of treated as second class because you couldn't contribute. You were expected to obey, but nobody would listen to you because you were a child. We don't really get the nostalgia for childhood in kind of adult writings from these periods that we do in in modern writing. And it's because childhood looked very different. Childhood was very um, hard. It wasn't the protected time that we have today. Um, in fact, somebody has done a, just a small survey on literature from the Roman Republic and Empire, uh, Han China and early modern Japan, and it has been noticed that there is a striking absence of reference to childhood, either positive or negative. Lots of talk about mothers. Um, often mothers were spoken with with affection. Lots of talk about fathers who were seen as being distant and stern and scary. But not a lot as being actual children. And certainly none of the nostalgia that we have. when we get to the roman republic the roman empire we see children being played with we've got we've got evidence of children being played with we've got evidence of of toys you know of of dolls and and um knuckle bones and that sort of thing but what is interesting is that there is this clear preference that when a child stops being an infant they start um demonstrating adult behavior. And so there's this term in Latin um, that translates as old boy, poor senex, um, which is this idea of being older, uh, old before your time, uh, older than your years, in a way that if we encounter that in a child today might be a cause for concern. Pliny writes um, about a girl that he respects her elderly sense of discretion and her matronly modesty. And so we've got this idea in, in Roman society that children were best when they were behaving like adults. And I think that's really interesting because I think that is often a reflection on their own childhood so we we have this cyclical idea that that children should hurry up and behave like adults that is best because that's what children do because adults are the preference whereas in a modern society where we kind of have um we have this nostalgia for for childhood we have this idea that being a child was amazing. You know, my school days were the best time of my life. We want children to behave like children. I said it myself. Um, I took my year eights on a trip, my year eight German class, to a Christmas market a couple of weeks ago. And the comment that I made to one of the teachers who was on the trip with me was that it was nice to see them behaving like children. And of course, what I meant was it was nice to see them behaving like my perception of children, what I think a child should be like. And it's the same here. It's the same in ancient Rome, where it's nice to see children behaving like adults, because clearly
2: that's what Pliny thought children should be doing. visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today happy reading
3: in today's educational environment students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face online and blended learning courses canvas by instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success.
2: On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back, and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials, and working groups at beds, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institutions' tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at bet 2024 educators go free get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration
1: good morning to you sj who texted in there during the adverts you are not too far away from me uh coming from bath here in the uk so it is good to have you Here, listening to the show. We've only got 10 minutes. I always, always, always overplan the show. Um, So let's talk really quickly about adolescence, uh, about the concept of of teenagehood, because what we've seen, what we've discussed so far, is this idea that children should just be mini-adults. And again, we see that all the way through uh, the Victorian period. It's this running theme that childhood is a training ground for adulthood and that children are best when they are behaving like adults. Children are best when they are able to contribute. Again, it's a stereotype, but we, we know about the children working in Victorian workhouses. We know about the children chimney sweeps. Um, we, we don't have this kind of separate idea of a nostalgic fun-filled, learn-through-play childhood, that's a very recent um, development. What we have instead is a childhood of learn to be an adult by behaving like an adult. And there is this kind of theme of adulthood being the, the grand prize. Adulthood is the golden ticket. Adulthood is what we're all aspiring towards actually when you think about it particularly from our context right now being a child was much better there was more freedom there was more fun as as CS Lewis famously um, opined he was he was excited to get back to being able to read fairy tales to being able to to Indulge in children's books again, to have that maturity to regress to childhood. And so clearly we have had a big shift in the last hundred years or so of what that gold standard is. And we've got we've had that change, perhaps due to decreased mortality rates um, of of adulthood being the standard because you can see why if if lots of children were dying in infancy and mothers were dying in childbirth at the age of 21 22 you can see why people might start saying oh well you know being an adult is the best thing ever because it means you survived it means you got there but now we kind of take for granted that we will get there that we will reach adulthood and so we can look back on childhood with that nostalgia Now, here in the West, this idea of adolescence as being its own distinct time then emerged during the 19th century and it came about as a result of the increasing amount of research on children. So this kind of loops us back nicely to what I was saying at the top of the show. It is hard to do research with children because there are so many ethical implications as well there should be. However, by including children in research about children, by asking them their opinions, by asking them their thoughts and feelings, you can actually learn quite a lot about them because they are not the same as we were when we were children. And we might find that there are all of these stages that actually exist that we kind of ignore these days, um, that we don't know exist yet in the same way that we now just take being a teenager for granted. But in fact, before the 19th century, it wasn't a thing. So for a 19th century child, adolescence would have been a time of increased schooling, um, particularly amongst the middle classes. And we've got evidence of puberty beginning to happen, Um, earlier and they think that that's because of better nutrition and more heterosocial contact Um, however we also see the emergence of some of the difficulties that are associated with with teenagers even today so we see youth, communi- youth consumer culture becoming a big thing in the late 19th century, um, particularly around books. Now it would be great if, um, if books were the big consumer problem amongst teenagers these days. I would be fully in favor of that, but I don't see it happening. Um, and of course by the mid 20th century we had music, we had film, Um, all aimed at this kind of mid-stage between childhood and adulthood, when these people were not considered adults yet. They weren't mature enough to be adults, whatever the thinking was, but they also weren't children. But what's interesting, of course, is that we're kind of going backwards in defining these eras, because what we're saying is we've got an adult then before that we have this really odd period where they are an adolescent where they're going through these changes that's impacting how they think um what they do what they want to do our society is changing because men and women are mixing more boys and girls are mixing more we're no longer as homosocial as we used to be and so that's potentially creating these biological changes And so before you are a teenager what are you? And so it's quite interesting to note that it was in fact the creation of the teenager, the creation of this concept of adolescence that caused this idea of childhood being also its own separate time. Because of course you can't say that a four-year-old is the same as a 14-year-old. And so It was by recognizing that teenagers are not the same as adults, that we recognize that children are not the same as teenagers. And so we recognize that children are not the same as adults. So we've spoken a a lot today about the agricultural societies, because I think I remember when I did the Industrial Revolution. At school. I was in year nine and my history teacher explained it to us as as being a revolution rather than an evolution because I was in school during a time where every lesson had to have a question associated with it and so I I remember distinctly this one lesson where it was industrial revolution or industrial evolution and we looked at this idea of the industrial revolution was a revolution because it happened very very quickly and there were these massive changes in a short amount of time. And that's kind of what happened with childhood. You know, we had the agricultural period for thousands of years where children were just treated as mini adults. Then we very quickly had the industrial revolution where children were still treated as mini adults, they were sent out to work. But then very quickly, the research happened, the concept of adolescence was invented. And so the concept of childhood was invented. So a history of childhood is in fact a very recent invention. The concept of childhood is in fact a very recent invention. And I think it needs more thought. One of the reasons that I'm so excited about childhood studies becoming a bigger academic discipline is that I think we need to think more about what it means to be a child. Because there hasn't been that thought, there hasn't been that reflection, not really. We've just kind of always, we're carrying on as we've always done. And if there is one thing that I cannot abide, it is doing something just because that's how we've always done it. I personally think, particularly when we're dealing with young people, there should always be a reason for everything. There should always be an actual justification. And so I think if we're looking at childhood, If we're looking at shortening the holidays, and thank you, Joe, for for mentioning that, because that's become another unexpected thread of this show. If we're looking at taking those opportunities away from children, we need to justify why. And we need to justify why in terms of what it means to be a child in 2023, in 2024, in 2025. And to do that, we need an understanding of what childhood is. Because it's only been in the last hundred years or so that childhood has existed as a concept and there have been big societal changes since then. So I think we need to give it some thought. I hope you found the show as interesting as I found doing the research. If you have, then please do go and check out a lot of the scholarly resources on this. It's fascinating. It's such an interesting area. Um, And I've not been able to do it justice in my hour and a half here today. Uh, It's probably a topic that we will revisit at different points throughout my tenure here on Teachers Talk Radio because it is interesting. Uh, And because I'm excited to see how um, how the academic discipline will grow. We've got so many shows available for you this weekend. Um, we have got lunchtime shows, we have got twilight shows, we have got more morning shows, we have got weekly reviews, we have got a whole swathe of things to keep you occupied over this weekend. So please, please do stay tuned to everything that my co-hosts have to say because one of the things that I love about Teachers Talk Radio is how diverse our shows are how diverse our presenters are and how everybody has something slightly different a different angle a different idea to bring so you can even hear two presenters talking about the exact same topic on two different shows and get two completely different perspectives which hopefully because this is education will help you to construct yours so do stay tuned i will be back next week three saturdays in a row who am i um So I will look forward to having breakfast with you then. Until then, have yourselves a great week.
0: Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.